Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus Financials Edition. We're calling this week's episode, It Could Happen to You When the Rubber Hits the Road for Financial Companies. I'm Gabby LaPera, and John Maxfield is joining us on the phone. Uh, speaking of rubber, let's talk about Medallion Financial. Uh, Maxfield, do you want to do a quick recap for our listeners about what Medallion does? Sure. So Medallion is, I love that name, by the way. Isn't that awesome? Like Medallion. It's, it reminds me of like, I'm in like an episode of Zelda or something like that. And yeah. I'm looking for a It makes game. them sound like, like winners, you know, like first place winners. <laughs> exactly. But it's like, it's like the fancy way of saying that you're a winner. You know what I mean? Oh, I yeah. got a medallion. Yeah. That, whereas like me, I got participation ri- uh, ribbons, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but I tried my hardest. But I'll say that. So medallion, what medallion does is it invests in, okay, so l- let, me, let me actually start in a different place. So if you want to drive a taxi in a big city like Chicago, New York, you, have, you, you can't just go get in your car, paint it yellow, right? And then put a little light on top and then drive it around the city picking up people, right? You got to get licensed. And in order to get licensed, you have to basically buy a medallion. And then that gives you a right to drive a taxi in a particular city for so long. Well, those medallions have been going for over a million dollars in New York City for quite a while, which leads you to believe that driving a taxi isn't such a bad business in New York City. And they were going for something like $350,000 or $330,000. I think it was a year or I don't know what the time period was. A couple years ago in Chicago, yeah. Yeah, and these the prices of medallions... These medallions have dropped something like 50% since Uber and Lyft and these other companies have started um, introducing new competition in the taxi industry. And so this has left not only the taxi industry in somewhat of a lurch, but also financial companies like Medallion that finance the purchase of these medallions. Right. So there's a couple things that Medallion does. It owns a bunch of its own medallions that it then helps people finance the purchase of as well as giving out loans for other people who, who want to buy medallions from other places. Just to right. make that clear. And so then when you think about it from a bank's perspective, when these prices on these medallions plummet, and these are the things that are collateral for their loans, it, it's big, big trouble um, for the financial industry, for, the, for those financial players, let me be specific, for those financial players that focus in this area. Yeah, I mean, just to give some hard numbers here, just so people have an idea of what we're talking about, the example that you gave for, gave for Chicago in 2014, medallions were at around $350,000, and four this year have sold for $150,000 out of, I believe, foreclosures, which is crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's just crazy. And it not only it, it, it's the magnitude of the drop, but the speed at which it happened. Because I think, like you said, it happened over the course of 12 months. And just for anybody who's, who's interested in this topic, let, let's just be, uh, I want to let you know that one of our colleagues, a, guy, a young man named Jordan Wathen, who's an incredibly talented writer, has followed this story for what, Gabby, a, a year now? And he writes really great stuff on this. So you can find all this stuff. You can just Google Jordan Wathen and, and medallions and really get the whole backstory on this. Absolutely. Um, But this being The Motley Fool, we have some foolish advice, I suppose. Um, So there are a ton of learning opportunities here, right? Because Medallion really thought it was on top of the world back in 2011. Um, I had just graduated from college back then, and I moved to D.C., and I was taking cabs absolutely all the time because I was working in the service industry. So I'd get out around four in the morning and I didn't want to catch a bus home. So I try and grab, grab a taxi because I had all my cash tip money and I also didn't want to get mugged. Um, and I, I'm not going to say I had the 
best experiences with, with taxi drivers. Sometimes I had really great experiences, and they told me all about their lives, and they were really friendly. And then one time I actually almost got hit by a cab driver. I was trying to get into his cab, tell him where I wanted to go, and he said, I don't want to go there, and just drove off. My hand was still on the door. Um, <laughs> the cop actually pulled him over a block down the, down the way because apparently it looked that close. <laughs> um, but Uber and Lyft, like you said, have completely taken over. So... Like I said, Medallion thought it was on top of the world back in 2011, and then something came along that no one expected in form of in the form of a tech innovation. And this is going to keep happening more and more as the pace of um, the tech technology industry accelerates. Um, so this is some this is a reality that could happen to any company. But there are some things that you as an investor can do to help insulate yourself from these kinds of risks. And I know we harp on this a lot on this podcast, but diversity is critical to every portfolio, both having a wide variety of companies as well as having companies that offer a wide variety of products. So even if one business segment bites the dust, they still have other ways of keeping themselves going. Yeah, and, and that's a criti- really, really critical thing because you have to match up what Gabby's saying about, you know, there are these industries, and you could think that an industry is, is completely protected from competitors because there's nobody else there, there's nobody else providing those services, but then some sort of technological innovation will come along and completely decimate or completely disrupt an industry. Back when, in the early 1900s, right, when you had cars come out, for the longest time, nobody thought that automobiles were going to be, they thought it was just going to be a kind of a niche hobby market. But then it came out and totally disrupted, right, your horse and buggy market. And, and it was just completely unseen. So it's important for investors, the one way to protect yourself from this, because you can invest in a good company for 30 years, and, and, and it could be a good decision, and they could get disrupted in 15 years. The best way to protect yourself is just diversifying. And you can do that by either buying just a bunch of individual stocks or probably the easiest way and, and probably the most sure way to diversify your portfolio adequately is just to buy an exchange trade of fund that invests in, say, the S&P 500. Absolutely. Um, and then, like I was saying about companies that have diverse business lines, um, you have, say, for example, GE, right? They have uh, energy, aviation, healthcare, transportation. Um, they even had GE Financial for a while, which they're spinning off and selling off to, to different people. But they basically ran a bank. I don't think a lot of people knew that GE essentially had a bank within itself for a really long time. Um, it wasn't doing great, so now they're selling it off. But it's, And it was a huge bank. It's a huge I, bank. I mean, it, I think I, I think in asset sizes, and I think they've run off some of their assets, and this has since been sold off. And I, th- I think uh, it, it operates under the name Ally Bank now, right? Is that... Is it, That used to be G's, if I'm correct. I mean, it's a huge bank. I think it's a top 10. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But like when people think GE, they don't think about that. They think about like washing machines. They definitely don't think about them making airplane stuff either, you know, but they, they have a lot of different things. Another one is like a Procter & Gamble or a Johnson & Johnson. They just have so many different business lines that people don't even think about. Johnson & Johnson, for example, makes surgical instruments. A lot of people have no idea. They just think of them in terms of Band-Aids. Yeah, yeah, and so you know, you're looking at Procter Gamble, or Johnson. I mean, these are, these are these are your 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 definitional companies that have internally diversified their product lines. And so, if you're looking at a company that's focusing exclusively on medallions or or, or over focusing on them, you really can see the impact of not diversifying because of uh, what that will do to your revenue stream, or as opposed to your companies that Gabby was just talking about. You know, you could have one business go down, other businesses will pick up the slack. 
Absolutely. And the other thing that you want to look at, and something that all these really big businesses have done, is that they have weathered adverse business cycles where innovation or bad market conditions could have killed them, but they didn't. Um, So that means you're going to be looking for companies that are highly adaptive and able to pivot to meet new challenges or environments. Um, The the business that comes to mind for me, because we do financials, is actually community bank systems. Um, They're a small bank system that's up in New York, um, and they actually thrived during the financial crisis because what they did was a lot of the bigger banks, they pulled out of the really small towns there because it was hard for them to be profitable there. And community bank system just swept up, scooped up all those little banks, all those little small towns, because those people still had to bank and there was no one to fill that void. And now bigger banks are having a hard time moving back into those small towns because everyone is with community bank systems. Pretty smart. Yeah, that's smart. I mean, you know, Gabby, I have now I've not looked into that company. I'm going to have to take a look at that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We can talk about it one day. It'll be pretty exciting. Actually, talking about banks, do you want to talk about Silicon Valley Bank? Sure. Yeah. So Silicon Valley Bank is another, you know, one of the things that Gabby and I have talked about a lot on the show is that, you know, when you're looking at not only just a company, but a bank in particular, and this comes from our, our favorite investor, Warren Buffett, you know, really the, the things that you're looking for are either a bank that is in a particular niche and a company that we've talked a lot about and that is in a particular niche over the last few months is New York Community Bank Corps. But another bank that falls into that niche is Silicon Valley Bank. And so when you're in a niche like that, what it allows you to do is it allows you to earn excess profits over your competitors because you can have wider margins because either you're specializing in a thing or somehow you've differentiated your product. Well, what Silicon Valley Bank does is it provides banking services to, guess where, Silicon Valley, right? So all your new startups. So a new startup will come in. It will need you know, treasury management services. It will need deposit accounts. It will need checking accounts. It will need loans, all these different things. Where do they go? They go to Silicon Valley Bank. And there are a number of really, really interesting things that come from this. The first is that if you look at Silicon Valley Bank, so most banks, what they do is they borrow money really inexpensively from depositors, and then they invest that money into much higher earn, interest-earning assets, namely loans. Well, what Silicon Valley Bank does is it has so much free money in terms of deposits. Let me, let me make sure my, my numbers are right here. Out of roughly $40 billion worth of liabilities, get this, $31 billion worth are interest-free deposits. That's insane. Think about that for a second. This is a bank that 78% of its financing is free. I mean, it's unbelievable. And the reason its financing is free is because all of these Silicon Valley banks put all of their excess deposits in there, and they get all that excess, all those excess deposits from your venture, your venture capitalists. So then what Silicon Valley Bank can do with this is because their funds are so inexpensive, they don't have to make as many loans as many of their competitors do, to earn as much money. So what that means is that it can then go and invest a lot of those cheap deposits into extremely safe securities, like government securities that are AAA rated, right? I can't remember if our government is AAA rated anymore or not, or AAA (laughs) minus or AA plus, but it's basically as safe as you can get. And it can still earn all this money, reduce credit risk, and and serve this particular niche market and it's just been a great thing for, for Silicon Valley Bank's investors over the years. It's been able to compound at a faster rate than many of its competitors. Yeah, actually, I was just thinking, do you want to comment on, because we were just talking about how it's really important to have a company that has diverse 
business interests, and we were just harping on Medallion for being a niche lender. So <laughs> yeah, what do you think point. about that in terms of Silicon Valley? That's a really good point, Gabby. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the benefit of being heavily concentrated in Silicon Valley is, are all the things I've talked about. The detriment, obviously, is that, <clears throat> right, if something happens where all your venture capital financing or something impacts the tech sector, like, say, the tech bubble, right, when that burst in 2000 or 1999 or 2000, that is going to hit Silicon Valley Bank. So it's not as diversified as, say, your Wells Fargo or U.S. Bank core is. So that is a risk you're going to take. But, you know, so far, it has offset that risk with, with higher returns. Absolutely. And actually, one of the really interesting things about them is, like you said, they're venture capitalists. They're investing in the tech uh, industry, which is really biggest source of innovation in the country right now. Um, a lot of the people that they have, or not a lot, but some of the people they have sponsored have been huge winners, like Cisco, yep. um, Twitter. Uh, I believe they also had Facebook for a little bit. I'd have to check on that one. Um, Uber was another one that they had, speaking about transportation. <laughs> and and here's, here's what is another really unique thing about this, and, and this goes to show why this has worked so well for Silicon Valley Bank, all of those companies, a lot of times when Silicon Valley Bank goes in to either finance, help them finance a deal or to provide services, they will take warrants in these company, which is companies, which are derivatives, which give Silicon Valley Bank the opportunity to buy shares in these companies at set prices, and oftentimes, when you exercise those warrants, those prices in, in the actual companies are much higher than the warrant price. So when you look at Silicon Valley Bank's inter- income statement, its top two non-interest income sources, and this is really unusual for a bank, are gains or losses from these types of instruments. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, the other thing that was really interesting about this bank to me is that it operates a little bit more like um, like a small bank would, like a little small town bank where if people are having trouble repaying their loans and they really think that they've got a good shot, they just need more time, they'll give people extensions. It's it's a lot more of a humanitarian approach to finance finances than you're used to seeing with banks. Yeah. And and you know, I think you're talking about that Wall Street Journal article where they're talking about there's a I I can't remember the name of the company, it's Tiny Co or something like that. Yeah. Where they were in breach of their contract of their loan covenants because I guess they had missed a loan payment or some, something was going on there. I don't know if it was a loan payment or maybe maybe some of their financial ratios got off got off off kilter. And they went back to Silicon Valley Bank and they got something like a six month extension. And then they were able to turn things around and then pay off their loans. So forbearance in certain instances it certainly pays off. Absolutely. Um, anything more you want to say about that, or do you want to move on to our next topic? No, nothing, nothing in particular. Just that, you know, if you're looking for a niche bank, this is one you're going to want to throw into, <laughs> in, into, your, into your kind of analysis. This might be a good way to help diversify your portfolio, um, as long as you don't put all of your money in one place. That's right. Fair? That's right. Fair. <laughs> um, so there was another article that uh, we actually saw on Wall Street Journal um, that some insurers are actually raising rates on life insurance policies that they sold back in the 80s. Um, And this is for a special type of insurance called universal life insurance, which is kind of like a combo life insurance slash like savings account type deal, and it has tax advantages on it. Um, 
And this is really unusual. Like most of the time, insurers do not do not raise prices on customers, especially ones that they've had for so long. And the 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 increase in price can be anywhere from they said the low the lowest was going to be like one hundred and fifty dollars, but for people who have millions and millions and millions of dollars in these accounts, then it could be over six figures. Yeah, I mean, and and, and this just goes to show that low interest rates don't only hit banks. I mean, insurers are just really, really struggling right now to make any money. And if, if they're not able to make money, I mean, they've, they've got to adjust it some way. And evidently, you know, raising rates on long-term existing customers, it, it's gotten so dire that, that that's where they feel like they need to go. Absolutely. And let's back up a little bit and explain to people. So uh, federal interest rates, like we've said many times before on this program, are extremely low right now, like historically low. They pretty much can't get any lower than they are. And the gossip mill water cooler of the Fed is saying that eventually they'll probably raise them probably pretty soon. Um, probably this month. Probably right? this mean, month, which we've I mean, we've said every month since June, I think. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> since last June. <laughs> but um, but maybe probably this month. Um, and when interest rates are this low, it means that insurance companies who are normally have these these uh, funds and kind of safe investments, they can't make as much money on them to the point that apparently they're starting to lose money and they can't like keep the investments up. Yeah. Yeah, this is just, and it's just a bad time for insurance companies, and it's a bad time for banks. And you know, even if you're not even interested in investing in an insurance company, because they are struggling to make money off of their off their investment through their securities portfolios because of these ridiculously low interest rates. But the the other the angle to look at this from is not as necessarily just as an investor, but also as somebody who's looking for life insurance. When interest rates are low like this. It's just going to insurance life insurance is just going to cost a lot more. So you know you can even think about life insurance from the perspective of kind of looking at it at a, uh, as a contrarian investor, and then to wait until actually purchasing it for yourself or a large policy for yourself, maybe buy a, an intermediate policy to get you you know to buy you some years, and then buy your large policy. Wait until interest rates have gone up a little bit and the price of those policies have gone down. Absolutely, um, I think that we should do a show on insurance sometime. I think it'll be really exciting. Don't you? <laughs> and on insurance? Yes. <laughs> Captivating. <laughs> I know. Just that's what makes our, our blood fire. Um, <laughs> anyway, I think that's it for today. Uh, anything else you want to add? That's all I got for you. All right, great. So as usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks for joining us. I hope you like this week's episode. Uh, join us next week. I think we're going to be talking about books. Write to us at industryfocus at fool.com to tell us about your favorite financial stocks. 